friends and welcome to another episode of While We Were Waiting, where we share expert insight and true tales from inside the restaurant industry. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I'm her husband and co-host, AJ Gilbert. Well, you may have seen her on the Food Network's Kitchen Casino, Beat Bobby Flay, or Supermarket Stakeout. She's also the owner of Amiga Amore, Mex-Italian pop-up in Los Angeles, the proprietor of El Toro Hot Sauce, and all-around awesome working mom, Chef Danielle Duran-Zeka is on the show today. Um, But we're going to share some stories about good old-fashioned celebratory events and restaurants. But first... Wow, your accent was just excellent. Ah, thank you. I work really hard on that. Uh, First, I thought we'd check in and see what's going on with your other job, not restaurant-related, which is Days of Our Lives on NBC, weekdays at (laughs) 2 o'clock. I think it's different in every market, but somewhere Uh, between 12 and 3, you're going to find us every day on NBC. Yes. Uh, For those just tuning into our podcast, my my backup gig is uh, I play Belle Black on Days of Our Lives, and I've been doing this off and on since 2004, but this week... I made the cover of Soap Digest, which never happens. And so that was a nice surprise. It definitely gave me a boost when uh, one might need it most. And what did it say on this cover? Oh, what was the story about? I have to look. Uh, (laughs) I think it's saying it's like a, I didn't really look at it. It's, um, it's a summer preview (laughs) about what's happening. That's the best. Why? I don't read anything about soap operas anymore. I'm sorry. You caught me. It's true. Okay. I, I Listen, I want to be a team player and I want to like, you know, promote the show and it's really exciting, but I, you know, I have two other jobs and homeschool and like, it takes it's just... a long time to read those magazines before we get you in trouble. So the takeaway is that you were on the cover of soap opera. Digest. Digest. So when do you expect to go back to work on Days of Our Lives? Have you had any well, indication? So right now, I, I guess we should, for context, for those that aren't familiar, just like the restaurant industry, the entertainment industry is shut down. Yes. There's virtually no production going on. And, you know, for actors and for crew and stuff, this is very similar to what's happened in the restaurant business. These people are, are devastated and out of work and on unemployment yes. and all the same in things. Cal- in California, I would say probably a very large part of their unemployment is going to be entertainment, production, crew people. It's, you know, this whole coronavirus is devastating everybody. Um, so well, let me first start by saying that we shoot eight months in advance or up until all of this. We were eight months ahead. So everything that's going to start airing with me in it in the next couple of weeks is stuff we shot like around Thanksgiving. So the, the, and that's always been kind of a weird thing that sort of happened over the last few years, but the good news is that we're actually the only soap opera that has content like teed up all the way through October. The other three shows, Young and the Restless, Bold and the Beautiful and, and General Hospital, um, they've already run out of their original content. So they're doing all sorts of like cool specials and, and stuff like that, um, so we're in a really good position. 
Um, and you know, conceivably, and I, that, that without an interruption, you guys could go back to shoot in September and, or something. And like late September and still be fine, you know? So I, I do think that we'll go sooner than that. I know some, some of the shows are saying they want to go back in June, but I, I also understand that nobody can really do anything without the directive from the unions. Um, so you know I, and I, I don't think they've safe. said anything yet. You know what would make it safe to be on a soap opera set? What? The one step is to take away all the kissing. Oh, you hate the kissing. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of people would be fine with not having to go and kiss each other at work, but I think the audience would revolt. They need some love in the afternoon. And there's not going to be any more kissing. There's definitely going to be kissing. We are, li- <laughs> of course, there's going to be kissing. It's got to happen. Yeah, well, we'll have to talk about the quarantine procedure afterwards. So, um, <laughs> does this mean I get my own apartment? <laughs> so, school's out for summer. We just got the email today. Today to is tell. officially the last day of school. Thank yeah. God. I'm so really? happy about this. Yes. Oh yeah, I mean, it's nice not to have, I mean, I wasn't, you were doing it much more than I was, but, um, Yes. You know, it, it feels like we're just kind of floating off into the, uh, I mean, we have no activities for uh, Charlie. I guess well, that's we're working not true. on something, right? Well, so I have teamed up with at least one other mom in our neighborhood who we love, um, whose daughter is Charlie's uh, declared BFF right now. And, um, and so we've decided that Charlie is going to be part of their babysitting group, uh, she and her sister and now Charlie, two times a week and they have a pool. And so it's really exciting. And I actually haven't told Charlie this yet because I don't want her head to explode, but uh, she will be spending two afternoons a week with her best friend at their house with a pool and a nanny. And we get two days a week to be quiet. Yay. I just think that's great. I just think that just the anticipation and the structure, I mean, you know, it's not seven days a week, but it'll be such a, it'll be something to look forward to. It'll right. make the week make sense. There'll be contours to time and stuff. And I, I just right. And I fantastic. made this determination because in getting to know her parents, I know that they are taking all the precautions that we are taking. And so I feel like, you know, we have to start incorporating some social time into her life again. And I feel safe in this small group, perhaps maybe one other, um, you know, group of, uh, uh, family, um, I'd consider that. But I think at that point, you know, we just need to kind of stay in our little cluster until we start getting some news that there's, you know, uh, yeah. that everything's going to be okay. Make so. good decisions. If anybody has a fever and then you have to, you know, wait and get tested and all that totally. stuff. Totally. Exactly. Great. And so we've all kind of pinky swore that's how this is going to go. So there's something I wanted to talk about, which is an idea I was, you know, so we're, we're trying to work on the restaurant that we will one day open here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I kind of came away, I was listening to a podcast that David Chang did, and I've been reading a lot and thinking a lot and looking at other restaurants. And, you know, for us, I think the full service model is not something that I'm bullish on for the future, meaning that, um, you know, if you're reopening a restaurant or something that is you know, has its audience and what have you. That's a very different point of consideration, but we're opening a new restaurant. What kind of restaurant should that be? And I just can't think of opening a traditional full service restaurant. And I was thinking of this exercise because, you know, to start this restaurant, we went and met a bunch of investors and we had dinners and pitches and all that stuff. And the story that you're telling them is, 
of a full service restaurant that, you know, in the waning days of full service restaurants, that's another discussion, but because it's in Dallas and the costs are lower and such, you know, it would do well and the beautiful building. And, and so I was thinking, you know, how do you, how do you think about the new concept? And I thought, you know, an exercise that people might find useful is kind of pitching yourself, your own restaurant when you reopen, right? Mm -hmm. And, and are you considering the new risks? So when you opened your restaurant the first time, there was competition, there was the cost of doing business, there were all the things that you were concerned about, and you incorporated those into your ideas of how you'd succeed. My restaurant will do better than the restaurant across the street because, you know, the the core is better. The food's better. Whatever your argument was, declare all of your all, declare all of your advantages, right? Right, and solve all of the problems so that everyone feels like there's no chance it could fail, <laughs> right? Yeah, and and I think that when you write a business plan, what you're really doing is creating an argument with the investors that you're pitching or the bank for all the things that they would see that would be a problem. So, right. you know, why would this work? Well, we thought of this. We thought of this. So what's going to change, right? How's the world going to be different after the pandemic? So how would you make a business plan for during and after and now and all these things? And I think the first thing that I keep coming to is there's just so much we don't know. Yes, but we've also been talking through all of this about building a concept that can survive another shutdown. And I think that has to be the litmus at this point. Yeah. So that was like number five on my list, but I think oh, that's an excellent. Okay. Uh, 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 no, that's, that's number great one on my list. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, if if you were pitching a restaurant to an investor now, they would ask you, what if your restaurant is closed down by the government because of coronavirus or another pandemic, right? I mean, how long are you going to operate? 10, 15 years? At some point, there could be another pandemic. Do you have a contingency? Is there something you can say other than you know, I don't know. I don't think there's going to be another pandemic because that's probably not a good answer anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your answer could be, well, we're always going to keep $200,000 in the bank. I, right. and that, that might be a terribly impractical answer, but that could be an answer that I, I would accept that as an investor. I would say, well, at least that would probably work. I wouldn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nope. That's a no uh, for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say, you know, it's very inefficient, I think. That's another discussion. But well, in terms of it like- It could cost you... a lot more than that. So could, that's why. It could, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so that would be the first thing. What do you do in another pandemic? How do you survive a shutdown? And I, I think that for us, the answer is there has to be something to sell in all these different environments, right? So it's not enough just to have a restaurant where people walk in, sit down right next to each other and are waited on by a waiter and, and eat dinner anymore. It's not enough of a business model. That's right. Um you know, the other thing that I would need to be able to answer is it's likely to be one of the worst economies we've seen in a long time. How long that'll last, who knows? Who but knows? is your restaurant capable of doing well in a really down economy? And I would say if, you know, if your check average is, you know, $100 a person, that could be a problem. I think that restaurateurs are really taught to rely on their selves and their ability. Well, I'm a very good chef, therefore, or, you know, I have, you know, uh, a great reputation, therefore. And I would say that that's probably not going to do it. You know, you really have to think about what you can do to get people to come in at a time in their lives where they're probably not feeling like celebrating. And for us, you know, 
again, we're, we're really thinking about a value proposition. You know, what, what can we sell that would be a value to people so that you're not just competing against other restaurants, you're competing against other sources of food. Right. Right. Um, because, you know, people will say about restaurants, well, everybody needs to eat. Yeah, but they don't need to eat at a restaurant. They can eat at uh, the supermarket. Uh, they can eat at the drive through at McDonald's. We, Charlie hurt her lip and wanted a Happy Meal. It was $3.95. It was um, also poison, and I can't believe you fed that to her daughter. But anyway, oh, she was go bleeding. ahead. Um, but, yeah, you know, how do you... That's what okay. Band-Aids are for. <laughs> but if if... If you're trying to resolve, if your market is people who are hungry, you do have to compete with McDonald's, right? Um, yes. And part of that can be quality, but you do have to recognize the price point of, of eating calories is, can be quite low. So um, that's another thing I think we need to incorporate into kind of restaurant 2.0 is how do we answer for the economy that we're likely to open into? Does that make sense? Well Yes, it makes sense. And I think that a lot of the answers are going to fall into the categories of diversification, right? Making sure that the line items that you're selling are not just liquor, beer, wine, and food. It has to be right. like 20 things that you're selling and getting really creative about how you can sell those things, um, you know, whether it's in person or um, through wholesale or whatever. I think these are all really great things to consider. I also think that the days of, you know, a restaurant being built around the skill and creativity of one chef, those for a full service dining experience, I think those days are over. I really, really do. I think that right now you're going to find people, operators and chefs and, and, um, you know, restaurant people who the people who will succeed are the ones who will understand psychology, sociology, marketing, you know, consumer goods. I mean, consumers selling consumer items. What's, I don't know what the right, what's the right? Yeah, that's, that's fine. Merchandising is what I meant to say. Um, and, and, you know, they're going to have to get really creative, uh, in order to stay relevant. And I, th I do think that the whole landscape of restaurants is going to morph into something that has more of those types of things. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I mean, I thought that it was really nice to talk to Chef Two last mm -hmm. week. And one of the mm -hmm. things he said that really stuck with me is, you know, that he would work with these food brands and they're like thinking about the world and the future and, you know, global events and climate change as they mm -hmm. build their products. And restaurants just think about, you know, making a good cocktail and getting through the day. And, and I think that, you know, thinking of, you know, this pandemic has really shown that that, that way of operating is probably not sustainable. And the last thing, and this is the hardest one, what happens after, right? So, you know, if you build a restaurant for a recession during a pandemic, eventually that is going to end, right? And, you know, how do you pivot out of that so that, you know, you're not selling, you know, beige boxes full of canned food when people are ready to go out and have a good time again. I don't think, and I think, I think, let me just stop you because I think it's not a good idea for anyone at this moment to try and plan how to again, pivot out of something. I think right now, everyone needs to figure out how to continue doing what they're doing safely. And if the time comes when, you know, a full service restaurant makes sense and is safe for everyone, then that's your second location. <laughs> you know, that's the next business plan. But I think- well, so, so so let me tell you why I, I think this way is we opened Henry's Hat, which was our gastro pub 
My favorite and, restaurant ever. Yes. And we opened in the middle of the Great Recession. We had a very low price point. Mm-hmm. You know, when the economy started to get better. So the first year that we were open, we hosted a ton of Christmas parties mm-hmm. because all the businesses were broke. All the studios were broke. All the kind of production companies along Ventura Boulevard were broke. And they needed to throw a Christmas party. So they went to Henry's Hat and they had burgers and queso and, you know, played mm-hmm. uh, Wii tennis and, and such. The next year, they had budget again. And they were like, no, 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 we're going, yeah. we're going back to the Mondrian and we're going to take everybody to Puerto Vallarta or something like that. And we did right. very few Christmas parties. That's right. So we were dead. I, you know, our, our recession-proof restaurant wasn't good economy proof. And I, I do think that that's something to think about. Yes. I think that at the time there were gastropubs popping up everywhere. And after a year and a half of like depression and recession and, you know, people got sick of hamburgers and they wanted steak again. And so, yeah, that's, that's how it went. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. So, like I said at the top of the show, we have an amazing chef as our guest today. Her name is Danielle Duranzeca, and she is the creator and proprietor of El Choro Hot Sauce, and also Amiga Amore uh, Mex Italian pop-up in Los Angeles. She also was just recently invited to cook at the James Beard house. So she's super fancy and we're so excited to welcome her to the show. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Hi, guys. I kind of wanted to just start with what you're doing today. And, you know, we're, we're all on lockdown still from coronavirus and um, you are still preparing and selling food for via takeout and delivery from home, right? Correct. Yes. Um, I kind of turned my home into a catering facility um, a few months ago. So um, it really ended up helping during this time because now I've been able to do delivery and takeout. And the first thing that we actually ended up doing was um, taking a lot of donations that people wanted to give meals to frontline workers or hospitals. So the first meals that we ended up preparing were um, all donated meals. So that's kind of the start of it. That's amazing. And that's like so nice to be able to do something so personal and so helpful during a time like that. So well done. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. I want to talk about um, how you got started in the culinary world. What, what put you on that path? Oh God, where did I start? Um, you know, I always just grew up in a family that loved to be surrounded um, by food, by love, by um, just being in the kitchen. Any gathering was just always congregated in the kitchen at first. And um, it just really grew from there. During high school, it was really, what do you want to do? You want to go to college? And I really just wanted to cook. So, um, and you know, uh, being in a family that uh, my dad just had a lot of aspirations for me and he wanted me to go to college. So it wasn't like I could say, oh, I just want to go to a kitchen and cook. So uh, Le Cordon Bleu uh, was at my disposal and it just, it worked out wonderfully. I ended up um, joining that program right out of high school 
Right after Cordon Bleu, I worked in a number of kitchens here in California. Um, I worked at BLD, Church and State, MoMed, and Lakshan. And then I was waiting for Walter Mansky to open what is now Republic. And mm-hmm. um, it just took a really long time. So I, yeah, I, decided, I decided to move to New York. And you went to work at La Bernadette, right? Yes. Um, so I asked Walter. He's uh, really my mentor and just, just you know, a, I don't, he's my everything. He's like, you know, yeah. my, the chef. He's a good really mentor. Like. <laughs> he's a good, yeah. So I kind of really was like it torn. I wanted to stay in L.A. I wanted to be close, but he really had no timeline. And uh, we had just done different tastings in different locations in downtown, and they had all fallen through. So it was really like nothing holding me back here. And Mm -hmm. I asked him, what should I do? Should I, you know, go to San Francisco or should I go to New York? And he said, well, which restaurant do you want to work in? And I kind of, you know, I put together a list and he made some phone calls and La Bernadette opened up within a month. And within a month I had sold my car, got a one-way ticket to New York, told my roommate, like, I'm so sorry. Here's like, you know, $500 cash. I don't know what else to do, (laughs) but I got to go. And she was a pastry chef. So she totally understood. She was like, go, don't even worry. I'll figure out getting another roommate. And who is the chef owner of La Bernadette? That's Eric Repair. And what's it like to work for Eric? It was great. I Like I said, it was such a different learning experience. I mean, you learned what you did at school, and this was their way, which was a beautiful way, which was Michelin star way. The way that the kitchen works, um, there's three services, three turns, um, and it's tasting menu. And so you're looking at about... Uh, one executive chef, two chef de cuisines, six different sous chefs all running it. And then your kitchen, which was made up of 25 wow. different cooks. It was that a machine. crazy. Yeah. It was a machine. And in between each service, you broke down, cleaned, and reloaded. Right. Now, I imagine coming up through these really important kitchens in New York, uh, that you probably didn't see a lot of women in the kitchen, right? Am I wrong? No, I, I didn't see a lot at all. The first, so La Bernadette, uh, especially in like leadership roles, all of the men, it was only men that were um, chefs, sous chefs, um, even the pastry chef, uh, he was a male at the time. Um, the mm-hmm. only female really was, you know, the manager at the time and a mm-hmm. few a few cooks. But the locker room was very scarce. So Vespa was your restaurant. Where was it? The Upper East Side. The first year, it was my husband and his two partners. And then I had ended up winning a TV show and came into, you know, X amount of money and uh, wanted to buy out one of the partners. So then for the next three years, um, it was me, my husband and one partner. What kind of restaurant was Vespa? Homey Italian food. Um, the pastas were pretty traditional. And then with the appetizers and, and the mains, I really just kind of did what I wanted. We closed it really on a sad note because it was our first restaurant, me and my husband, and we really met at that restaurant. We had it for about four years. Um, and 
the way it closed was they were opening up a new subway. Well, not a new one. It was just an extension of the sixth line to go up on the Upper East Side. And they foresaw that in, you know, three years from now, we were going to have triple the amount of customers. But it wasn't going to be open until three years from now. So they justified, you know, raising our rent at that time. Um mm-hmm from uh, like something like 10,000 to 18,000. The TV show that you won, I- I'm assuming that you're talking about uh, Beat Bobby Flay, right? No, uh, oh. it's Kitchen Casino. That was the okay. first one. How did you get onto the Food Network? Like how did they find you or did you apply? No, they sent an email to Vespa asking mm-hmm. if you know their chef wanted to be on the new this new cooking competition on food network and my husband ended up applying and then I got Mm -hmm. a call to go in and do the interviews and I was like okay yeah sure why not and then yeah they cast me and um I ended up winning that one and then you went to work at the modern and then you ended up at Le Cuckoo that's a star restaurant right Stephen Star yes it is a friend of mine came that I worked with at the modern and he said you know, that this awesome chef that's originally from Chicago, he lived in France, is here in New York, and he's going to open this awesome restaurant with Steven Starr, and they need, um, you know, a sous chef. So how do you get back to California um, from New York? What brought you guys back? Le Cuckoo was getting everything. We, we already got the James Beard, and it was kind of like, all right. Um, I love this. I can keep doing this. You know, um, I can keep working for um, Stephen Starr and Daniel Rose. But what is it that we really want? We want a restaurant. We had our own. And, you know, anybody that has had their own and you come and you work for somebody else, it's just it's still there. You know, you you see everything that they're doing and you're like, I would do that differently. You know, you're just like you're still in it. And um, our hearts were just so set on it. The chances in New York, you know, once in a blue moon, unless you are a millionaire or you have the backing of like someone like Steven Starr. But we weren't we weren't ready on our idea yet. We just knew that we wanted to also start a family and New York City. I can't even imagine like the fourth floor walk up that we lived in to have a baby there. So we move all the way down here to California. I went to be the private chef uh, to Robert Earl which for like a two month stunt um, while he was here on vacation and he's uh, for Earl enterprise. It's planet Hollywood and Buka de right, Pepo. Right, right. Is being a private chef fun and great or is it like the worst job ever? Cause no one will ever give me oh a straight God. answer on that. <laughs> okay. Like let's say one day out of the week is fun. The rest of the days, it is the worst job ever because why? Just I don't know if it was my client, but especially because he was um, <laughs> he was uh, entertaining. You know, it was his vacation, so he was inviting over the, uh, Lisa Vanderpump, Reese Witherspoon. Right. You know, there are people coming <laughs> over for really fun dinners. So it wasn't like, you know, make what you want. It was like, no, I want seven o'clock. I want cocktails, uh, you know, your eggplant Parmesan bites, this, uh, that. Okay. Then we go wow. into our four course dinner, um, fresh <laughs> pasta. And mind you, this, this is about 2 PM and dinner and same day he wants dinner at eight. 
So that is I have to, and, yes. And he's like, and I don't want you to buy pasta. You need to make pasta. And it's like, <laughs> cool, cool. And then the dessert, you know, um, it, it felt like I was almost shooting myself in the foot because let's say last night I was like, oh, it's only two of them for dinner, right? I can make a really nice chocolate souffle. Well, if I make chocolate souffle, uh, that exactly. Well, we have 10 guests or it was like, what can you make that's better? So it was like, great. Now I need to bring out like crepe Suzette and get like the fire going in here, you know? So it was like, what can I top it with? Because you wanted more of a show. Do you have help for doing this? Or are you doing this all by yourself? Or what's the structure in the kitchen when you're doing these parties? Oh, it was by myself. And then my husband, no. um, he, he served. Got it. So you decide after that, you're like, you know what? I'm out. I need to make my own thing. Is that kind of what started the pop-up thing? Yeah. So I did my two months and it was great. And it was like, yeah, what do I do now? And in those two months, I cooked a lot and I cooked a lot of, you know, random food. Um, not, and it, it was the first time that I, that I was actually cooking food that I wanted or food that, you know, I had to remember how to do or look up a recipe or create something because every other restaurant I was cooking their food aside from Vespa. Um, but still it had to be, you know, pretty traditional Italian food for Vespa. Um, and you sort of, you coined the term Mex Italian, right? I did. Yes. That is ours. Describe please. Mex Italian. So, And and what are some of your favorite Mex Italian dishes in your description of it? Oh yes, absolutely. So Mex Italian is uh, a love. I'm sorry. Mex Italian is a friendship that became a love. Um, it is the story between me and my husband. I am Mexican and my husband is a hundred percent Italian and I would be cooking Italian food every single day and I'd be coming home and, you know, making myself something, which was like birria or garnitas or something, not that what I was cooking. And it was like, what do I actually love to cook Mexican food? Uh, But I love pasta. So it really became um, me testing out a lot of these recipes in order for him to kind of try Mexican food. And our dishes, a few of them that we're known for is uh, ones are nopreze. So it's a take on a famous caprese, but with nopales, uh, which is Mexican cactus. Mm-hmm. Um, so we cure those in salt. So they become really soft. Uh, I make homemade stracciatella. Um, nice. We put it with tomatoes. I use different basil, opal basil. Um, and then we finish it with a tahine salt, which is um, a Mexican spice seasoning that we use on like everything (laughs) (laughs) um and another dish that we're known for is our um, enchilada verde tortellini so um it's green pasta the pasta is made from uh poblanos and cilantro the inside is a braised chicken filling and then the broth is a tomatillo broth that's been clarified and it's finished with gotija pickled onions and micro cilantro so if you close your eyes and you eat it, it literally tastes like you're having enchilada. And that, is if awesome. that, that is so awesome. And as if that isn't enough, you also created your own hot sauce, el choro. I can't say yes. the R's very well. So oh, what uh, what inspired that? Um, the hot sauce I started making before I even moved to New York. And 
being in New York, I felt like I really couldn't do any of the things I wanted except for work. I felt like I was really on a hamster wheel, which wasn't a bad thing because it got me to where I am. I loved every minute of it. So moving here, I had a lot of free time, um, especially after, you know, leaving Union. And I just bottle started bottling it. And it really just took off from there. And um, it's a sauce that is so near and dear to my heart. It's not like your typical hot sauce. Everything is organic inside. We go to the farmer's market and handpick um, all the habaneros, all the tomatoes that go in it. And it's really like half the amount of vinegar that you usually put. Because I wanted it to add flavor to your food, not mask it with this like, you know, overpowering Mm -hmm. vinegar, just spice. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's been going great. Well, I did a deep dive on your Instagram and your food is beautiful and the pies are absolutely gorgeous. But I I have a question, which is Cannabis Supper Club. No, you want to know? What do you want to know? I, I, I want. I, what I is know, it? Yeah, I want to <laughs> know how crazy it is uh, because you know weed makes people eat, right? And oh, but not necessarily good food. So how does it work? Or, or is it? And and then I can't imagine waiting on stoned people. You know, I've had so, a lot of practice waiting on very- drunk people. <laughs> I bet they're very patient. (laughs) They're so patient. And at the end of it, they're so thankful. They're just so, so thankful. This Um, is awesome, dude. But it's hard to get, it's hard to close up because they just want to stay there. (laughs) Yeah, they they can't Uh, say shit, right? Yeah. No. So I got um, approached to do this cannabis pairing. The way that this guy was doing it was so elegant. And not like your typical, like, salmon, like, pass the pot. Like, it wasn't like yeah. that. Like, some of the, some of these guests, I mean, they look like you guys. Like, I, you wouldn't <laughs> typically, like, I, I mean, they look like just uh, some were doctors. Some, um, they, there was an older Korean couple that came in there, like, you know, their, their <laughs> traditional Korean clothes that were like beautiful gar. I mean, I, when oh, I yeah, looked it would be at funny if they didn't know it was a cannabis. Right? I know. No, no, that would have been horrible. I would have felt so bad. No, I would have probably been laughing. Um, but it, it was, it was not, it was not your typical clientele that you would think. So, um, and it was, the table was beautiful. The uh, venue was beautiful. It was, um, this, these people's home, so the way that they do it is you pair it with flour. So you smoke the, you know, the first one and then you eat the first course. It was six courses. Uh, people mostly took a lot of it home with them. They, you know, only partook in a little bit. But these people were, they were like, you know, smokers. It wasn't, right. it wasn't like it wasn't the having the proud. munchies. No, it <laughs> wasn't them having the munchies and like coming to the kitchen and being like, can I have another duck? No, it was like, <laughs> they, you know, they were just, they were elegant. All right. I think it's a good time to pivot to story time. And Danielle has an amazing story about a very fun way to celebrate in the restaurant. All right, Danielle, you're up. It was such a crazy time when I think about Le Cuckoo. I was approached by a really good friend of mine to help open this amazing restaurant um, that was going to be 
headed by a chef that was from Chicago originally, and he had lived in France and got an opportunity to open something in New York with uh, the wonderful Stephen Starr. The maitre d' was a man named Michael Checky. This man was just such, he was just such a extravagant man himself, you know, even his bow ties, even his hairdo. So, you know, he just had a, a poise, something about him. Daniel Rose is the chef. Amazing, um, just a mentor man. Um, and he was young, so it was so good to like learn and ride at his, you know, apron tails and just kind of see this whole opening, even from like a young chef's uh, perspective. To be a part of the opening sous chef team was just hectic and fun in itself because we were being reviewed. So that meant um, you didn't really have a life. And even before I took the job, I remember telling my husband, you know, like you just, you have to learn to say goodbye to me or you are you gonna have to like learn to come and see me there or something. The first month, it was so crazy, and I had to be on call 24 hours. I mean, I would get one day off a, a week, and during that one day, I was on call. Just in case, you know, Pete Wells showed up, or um, somebody else from LA Times needed to come do a review, or, you know, we, it, it, you just never knew who was going to show up, and as uh, being a sous chef during that opening, team you were assigned to a station so for me it was meat on tremet so any meat dish that left that restaurant was probably cooked by me <laughs> for that first year like 99.9 percent .9 of the time somebody like me i was cooking meat then i had another sous chef to my right who was just in charge of the fish i had a sous chef across from me who was just in charge of the appetizers and then one um to the right of him that was just in charge of the vegetables that went with the meat and fish dishes. So it was like a beautiful orchestra watching it being put together. Daniel Rose at the helm of, you know, this beautiful thing happening, but banging the back of a spoon, you know, yelling merde at us because we weren't doing things fast enough when we would close shop. And, you know, we cleaned the kitchen, we scrubbed down, we put everything away and we would have conversations. and. I think our maitre d', you know, just saw us and saw us such at hard work and saw how much commitment we had that anything that we did get a great review or a, a critically acclaimed um, award, something from anyone, he would just really want to show us the love. He would usually choose a real good time right in between dinner service and he would he would hire somebody, whether it would be a marching band that would come in and do um, Bruno Mars <laughs> or he hired a choir one time that just came in and sang like hallelujah. You never knew what this guy had up his sleeve. Uh, he paid a gentleman, a beautiful opera singer to act like a, a diner and in the midst of service just stood up and just 
started singing, I mean, the most beautiful song. It was crazy. Daniel Rose would turn red in the face, but we wouldn't let him leave. Even the guest uh, expressions, it just was so overwhelmingly joyful. Everybody was just so happy. It wasn't something that people, you know, thought was rude or they would, you know, give a weird look to. No, everybody at that moment was just so happy that they were actually in the restaurant to experience that. It was the place to be in New York City. And it was something that you just dream about or you see on TV, but we lived it in that restaurant and it pushed us to just be better and to do more just to get, you know, more recognition because we were on the top of our game and it was a great ride. Well, thanks again for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. And thank you, thank you, thank you to our guest, Chef Danielle Duran-Zeka. You can order food, pies, El Choro sauce, all of it on her website at chefddz.com. And you can also follow her sick food porn on Instagram at chefddz. You can find us and our episode pictures at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we definitely want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social platforms at Waiting Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review and hit that subscribe button anywhere you find podcasts. Until we meet again, wash your hands and get cooking. Take care, everyone. I rose above the noise and confusion Just to get a glimpse beyond this illusion I was soaring ever higher